Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 14th, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 1 to 26. The Lord continues to speak words of consolation that he will rebuild, restore, and forgive his people, and that he, he will keep his promise to give a descendant of David to reign over his people forever. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, it's great to be back. Pastor Flammy, we're here in Jeremiah chapter 33 this morning, the end of Jeremiah's book of comfort or book of consolation right here in the middle. And we've we've seen a lot of words of comfort. In chapter 32, we found out that Jeremiah was in prison under King Zedekiah. The beginning of our text today will inform us that we're still in that setting. Jeremiah has just gone through this buying of a field at the Lord's command and, and probably some of that imagery and that those ideas are still at play here in chapter 33. In, in terms of the context that we find ourselves in, the ministry of Jeremiah historically, all, all those things that might come to bear, what do we need to know going into this chapter today? Yeah, the year is 587. And the city of Jerusalem is, of course, under siege by the Babylonians. The land has already been depopulated. The people have been pushed into exile in Babylon. The temple and its courts and its riches have already been plundered. And this is God's will uh, because of the disobedience, the idolatry, the unfaithfulness of Judah. Uh, just as Israel to the north had forsaken the Lord for the false gods, so also the kingdom to the south, Judah and Benjamin, had forsook their Lord. And they rebelled against the Lord and uh, the, his chosen servant, Nebuchadnezzar, who has come to do the Lord's work of punishing them because of their idolatry, right? So Zedekiah rose up against God's appointed servant, and now he is uh, uh, disobeying uh, the Lord's command to submit. And because of that, Zedekiah is about to be hold off and uh, and go into exile himself, not before uh, watching his family being killed before his eyes. That's one of the, the facts that comes up when you read Second Kings about Zedekiah. Uh, very, very distressing <laughs> and very depressing, I would say. Uh, Jeremiah, like you said, he is uh, he's being detained. and uh, and as he's being detained, uh, he continues to preach and to teach and to send the Lord's word out. And probably what's surprising is that it's not just abject condemnation and ruin, of course, because of Zedekiah and the people's continued rebellion against the Lord. But here you could see Jeremiah is setting up God's people for what's coming next, the great comfort of their salvation. And uh, you mentioned that this is in the book of Consolation. Uh, which is definitely how I have seen it referred to by, by a commentator. Uh, uh, the Reverend Dr. Doug Judish uh, also says this belongs to 
the second main por por portion of Jeremiah's prophecy called the message to Judah. And it's talking about the, the nature of the message to Judah as being the divine word. So that's another way to break down the, uh, the structure there. So, I mean, that, that thought that you brought up from Dr. Judish, I think, fits very well with the context we had yesterday in chapter 32. Zedekiah was questioning Jeremiah while he's there in prison. You know, why are you prophesying this? Why are you saying all this bad news? And, and Jeremiah, he, he goes through this matter of buying the field. And, and the idea through it all was that whatever the Lord has spoken, that will come to pass. And, and certainly that includes the matter of judgment that is about to happen at the hand of the Babylonians, this condemnation, this siege that's about to break through the walls of Jerusalem and just wreak utter havoc there in Jerusalem for the people of God. That's going to happen because the Lord has spoken it. But so is the promise. And I, I think, I mean, that's that's kind of the move that Jeremiah is making here from 32 into 33 as the Lord again speaks to Jeremiah for the second time that what the Lord says happens. And, and even all the way back at the beginning of Jeremiah and Jeremiah's call where the Lord so shows Jeremiah the, the almond tree and says he's watching over his word to perform it. You see that theme come up again here toward the very bitter end uh, for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, where everything's about to just come crumbling down around them. And, and Jeremiah's ministry won't end at that exact moment. He will continue on a little while after 587 BC. But even at this very final moment for the city of Jerusalem, the Lord's still watching over his word, both to destroy, but also then to build, to plant, and, and to watch over them through the exile and to bring them back. And so that, again, yeah, that theme of the Lord doing what he says, I think is certainly at play here in, in this chapter, in these books, in this book of Consolation. So what would be an analogy? Uh, what seems historically inevitable for us today? That COVID will continue to, you know, uh, change the way that we live to destroy lives. Uh, maybe that society nowadays, we keep on lamenting its move towards a more progressive ideology that is godless, that hates Christians and wants to persecute the word of God, right? Uh, so the idea I, that you brought up uh, that, that was definitely being taught there by, you know, the purchase of the field and also that God will restore his people is that despite the testimony of our eyes and despite the direction of history, and that march of history, which which no single man can stand up against or hold back, you have something that's more sure, that's more certain than what you see, even the ground upon which you stand, and that is the word of the Lord. If the Lord speaks it, it must happen, even if your eyes give you different evidence, even if your eyes and your reason say that, no, it cannot be that way, destruction is going to be the end of us, yet the Lord according to his word, brought everything into creation. He preserves creation and he can save his creation, especially his people here. Uh, what great comfort, you know, the, to, and, and, and this is really the combat of faith. Uh, the, the, our eyes and our reason and our senses, uh, these are all employed against our faith by the devil, the world, and the flesh, you know. Uh, we, we are given uh, the testimony that says that uh, God does not love you, that all is lost, all is hopeless, right? And the only thing that can stand against that is the promises of Holy Scripture, oftentimes in our lives, especially if we are suffering. Uh, you know, somebody comes down with a sickness, a 
terrible diagnosis about how your life won't last more than 10 years. You can imagine how the devil is waiting in the wings, waiting to bring uh, uh, just complete despair into a, a person's heart because everything that they love and value in this world is being taken away. They give all the cancer treatments the person has to go through, the uncertainty, right? Uh, the weakness, the sorrow. And against that, you have the word of the Lord, which promises not just uh, uh, that things will get better someday, right? But even right now, God loves you. He has given the very best thing to you, which is the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. And he will also uh, restore you in the resurrection of all flesh. And this is where God wants us to set our hearts on his promises as opposed to the testimony of our eyes and our conclusions about history. Well, let's see how Jeremiah begins to preach that, teaches that to us as well today. We're in Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. And I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. We'll pause there. That was through verse 13, Pastor Flammy. So the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah a second time. He's under house arrest in prison there with King Zedekiah under the court of the guard. And, and the Lord identifies himself to Jeremiah as the one who created everything mm. by his name. And then verse three is, is maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about that. Call to me, I will answer you. I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. And that the Lord's about to reveal to Jeremiah something that otherwise it, he wouldn't have known this by human wisdom, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Lord who established the earth is about to establish 
other great and amazing things for his people. Uh, and this is also really interesting. You get uh, insight into this divine dialogue before, between the Lord and his prophet, right? And it's not so much that the prophet goes into a religious ecstasy, right? His eyes, eyeballs go back in his head and he starts like saying stuff. Instead, it looks like a conversation between persons, right? So Jeremiah is invited by the Lord to call upon the Lord, to use his name, to recall his former promises and commands, right? And his, uh, and his instruction. And according to his prayer to the Lord, the Lord returns an answer. And even for this particular prophet says, I'm going to give you new things, things that no other man has heard, right? Or as you were mentioning earlier, things that cannot merely be deduced from what you see and what you think uh, of the world, right? Uh, this is something that belongs to the Lord's heart. And the Lord is revealing his, his heart now, not, to, uh, uh, not through the stuff of the world, uh, not through the, even the, the great tumultuous events of history, but he's revealing his heart through the word uh, spoken now through the prophet for the comfort and the salvation of his people. Now, this revelation that the Lord gives to Jeremiah starts in verses four and five with words of condemnation and destruction. We hear once again of what's about to happen to the city of Jerusalem. What's the what's the image? What is what's being revealed there in the first verses four and five concerning the destruction that's about to happen? Yeah, so you could see how I suppose how desperate things are getting, right? So the houses of the city, the houses of the kings of of Judah, I mean, these are the places where people would have lives, that they would have had, uh, uh, you know, family peace and comfort and joy. Uh, these same houses, not just of the common people, but even of the kings, are being torn down and thrown up as a barricade against uh, the Chaldeans who are. Who are coming in to destroy them, right? I, I don't know. That's when you know things are getting really bad, when you have to tear down your own house to put a wall, a makeshift wall between you and the enemy. I mean, just think about the desperation that has to be filling a person's heart, you know, fear and terror. And, and this is the, this, the, the scary thing about this in verse five. Uh, they are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men. Uh, and so the, these places that had been uh, sort of the, the, the seats of life uh, in, in, in the habitation of Jerusalem, right? This is where uh, mothers would have children and rear them. This is where fathers would, were supposed to teach the word of the Lord to their children, where people would gather together to, to eat meals together, to enjoy one another's company. Now the homes, having been torn down and thrown up, as a barricade are going to be filled not with life, but with death, you know, and the Chaldeans are going to fill them with the dead bodies of men. And this isn't just the Chaldeans fault. God is making himself responsible. And that's important to, to notice here, whom I, the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath, it says. Uh, so remember, these the events of history are by no means out of God's control. Instead, we see here through the preaching of the prophets and Jeremiah that God is absolutely involved with history. Uh, the Babylonians are his instrument of wrath against Judah and their prolonged sins against the Lord because of their idolatry and their mixing together 
the worship of the true Lord with the uh, uh, with the worship of the false gods and thinking that by performing the work of sacrifice in the temple, that's enough to please God, as opposed to fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things, having faith in the promises of, of the word. And because of that, God had long ago promised. I, I, I was just talking about this with my Bible study uh, last week as we're going through the book of Daniel. Then I think it is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord says, here, I am making a promise with you uh, that you will possess this land as long as you remain in my law and you do everything that I tell you. But if you don't do what I tell you, then all of this stuff, this land, your prosperity uh, and your continuance in the land will be taken away. And which is really fascinating because 70 years later, right, you have Daniel after Jeremiah meditating upon this fact that just as the Lord had promised, that if the people did not obey and worship the Lord alone, then everything would be taken away, right? And this is so impressed itself upon Daniel that for comfort, he picks up the book of Jeremiah <laughs> and reads the word of the Lord revealed to the prophet there for also his comfort and the promise that after 70 years, the people would return. And so he petitions the Lord, not according to the people's obedience or renewed zeal in exile. But even then, after 70 years, he says, don't re look at our, our, our sin. Instead, remember your mercy, right? And so this is, uh, uh, and, and so this is really imp important background. The people are full of sin, so much sin that temporally everything is being taken away and their enemies are the Lord's instrument against them. But that does not change What's coming next in, in verses 6 and 7 and following? Uh, that despite the Lord's chastisement, the Lord will be, bring even greater blessing. And even the chastisement and the punishment of the people is going to serve the coming of this blessing. And uh, the, the, this great and hidden thing that the people could scarcely imagine, right? And what we know as Christians is, the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. Hmm. That move from verses from verse five to verse six is quite striking mm -hmm. because at the end of verse five, as, as you said, you have the Lord making himself responsible for what is happening to the city of Jerusalem there in 587 BC. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, the Lord says, I'm going to bring health and healing. And I'm gonna I'm gonna heal and reveal the I mean and, and I do think that's the that is the hidden thing that that suddenly the Lord you know he he shows his mercy for the sake of as you said bringing the Christ and that that comes through even more clearly as this chapter continues and begins to talk about the righteous branch from from David again but that that move from condemnation to mercy you know it just it springs up out of nowhere we've we've seen this elsewhere in these couple chapters again sometimes called the book of consolation where where the lord will have these words of judgment and then suddenly boom there's the grace which mm. I, I think is a reminder that this isn't because of as you said with daniel it's not because of the the sincerity of repentance or something like that but it is because of who the lord is it's based on his promises so what are those those promises that jeremiah then begins to preach in verses 6 and following yeah, so uh, be, the people are being destroyed unto death, at least the ones who were still holed up in Jerusalem, resisting Nebuchadnezzar in their uh, defiance of his siege, right? And uh, in, in it just, as they are dying because of their sin, 
Now the Lord is saying, I will bring to it, that is his city, Jerusalem, health and healing, right? So whereas everything is, is being torn down in a desperate effort to, to, uh, to, to keep this crumbling and destroyed city, uh, the Lord is setting now in the people's minds, Jerusalem restored, right? Or that which was rent apart is now going to be bound back together. And he says, and I, and I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of prosperity and security, which is an interesting turn of phrase. What does it mean to reveal to the people an abundance of prosperity and security? I don't know. I, I suspect, and maybe I, I'm just too ignorant of the original language here, but I suspect that the people had been putting their fear, their love, and their trust in all of the wrong things. I mean, this is why their land and their city are being taken away. They have, a, they have had very specific ideas of what it means to have the Lord's favor and blessing and prosperity. And now the Lord, just as abruptly as you switch from verse 5 to verse 6 with condemnation to grace, so also the Lord's people's minds need to be flipped from idolizing temporal things, the stuff of this world, the stuff that distracts, to now seeing where true abundance and prosperity and security come from, which is in fact from the Lord's word, right? Uh, to, to, to have, as Jesus describes in, in his gospel, heavenly riches. And so when Jesus comes preaching heavenly riches, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, do you think that this is a different sermon than has been preached up until that point? That the people in the Old Testament were, were, were told, yeah, uh, love temporal things, love your land and wealth and your future generations uh, physically that God will give you. Those are indeed blessings from God, but above those, right, of first importance are the heavenly riches that the Lord gives you his name, right, his kingdom, his, which is not, uh, which is not uh, of this world, but a kingdom of grace and blessing. Uh, that fights back against sin with the promises of, of resurrection and eternal life, right? And also the, the, the great riches of, of the Lord's will, that it be done in your life, that you hear the word of the Lord and, and by faith worship the Lord alone. That was Israel's problem. And so they need repentance, a changed mind, right? To go from their obsession with all the wrong things to uh being uh, received by the Lord into the only thing that matters, which is him, you know, to be in fellowship with himself by faith with his word. As you were talking there, I'm reminded of the, the language of the covenant that Jeremiah brings up over and over again in his book, in particular in this section where he, he goes back to the Exodus language that God says, where he, he tells his people, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And and all these physical blessings, you know, the the land and and the the milk and honey and, and everything that that comes along with it, that's kind of like the the cherry on the top. Mm. But but where it starts, it's it's that he's their God, they're his people. You know, the first commandment: you shall have no other gods. And and when they have that in place, these other things do fall into place. But when they just look at the, you know, for example, as they say in Jeremiah chapter seven, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and they're looking at only the the outward things, forgetting the heart of it, that the Lord is their God, they are his people, 
then then they fall into this kind of you know putting their fear love and trust in, in whatever else and and the you know the very horrific example of these houses being torn down as an attempt to blockade themselves against the Babylonian army is is perhaps just another example of that thinking that well we've got one last chance let's let's try even this to hold them out and the Lord says no it, it, there's there's more going on than that this is about who you are how you've not been my people but I am going to be gracious to you and call you back to myself. Hmm. Yeah, that also helps you to understand what does it mean to be rebuilt as they were at first, right? Uh, the people of God as they were at the first, I mean, if you think all the way back to, to Abraham, uh, his great fortune and prosperity came not from the physical blessings that the Lord gave him, which he, the Lord certainly did give him, but it came from the fact that Abraham was called out of idolatry to hear the word of the Lord and to believe the Lord's word. And for that, for and, and just like we learn about in Genesis chapter 15, and because he believed the Lord, he was reckoned to be righteous. That is the chief thing. That is the only thing that matters. You can have everything or nothing. It doesn't matter. Uh, you are still rich and prosperous and are built up and established in the Lord's sight if you have the word and faith. You know, that's what it means to, I think, to be rebuilt as you were at first. That is to be as Abraham, right? Or to be as David, the great patriarchs and fathers of, of, Israel, of Israel's faith. They were great and prosperous, not ultimately because they had many, many things, uh, because they had a tabernacle or temple, but because they had the word of the Lord, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great insight to be rebuilt as at first. I-, I was wondering about that phrase, and I think that's a fantastic way of understanding it, that the Lord calls them back to to himself to be their God, that they would be his people. This is what it means to be rebuilt as at the first, to be restored to that right faith toward him as their one true God. We're going to keep looking at this theme in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, but we need to take a break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah, chapter 33, with Pastor Brian Flammy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 14th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 1 to 26 with Pastor Brian Flammy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the break, we were looking at this first part of chapter 33, and within the promises that the Lord makes, he speaks of the city, Jerusalem, being a name of joy. I mean, this is a very joyful text beginning in verse nine and, and really through the various voice voices, the sounds that are heard within the city after the Lord restores it. Uh, why is this such an important section? I think it's an important section because you have to remember that Jerusalem uh, uh, reflects the Lord's people and the Lord's, uh, uh, it is the place where the, you know, of course, the people of the Lord are gathered where they live. 
Uh, it also is a reflection of who God is and what he does for his people. So if Jerusalem is in desolation, right, uh, then it looks like God has forsaken his people, right? And the people become uh, uh, a laughingstock to the rest of the world because they couldn't even keep the favor of their Lord. Uh, and so it's so important, I think, throughout the pre preaching of the Old Testament, that the Lord restores Jerusalem. He almost has to. Why? Because they, they, these people and his city bear the divine name, right? And so ultimately, if not for the people's sake, because they've been so good and deserve it, ultimately for the sake of his own name. And what does it mean to be Yahweh and to be preached among the peoples of the world? For the sake of his own name, he must restore Jerusalem and his own people that dwell there, right? And so this is uh, part of why it's so wonderful to hear about how Jerusalem will be restored. That is, the name of the Lord will be glorified through his city and people upon the earth. Right. And and everybody will will think of Jerusalem not as the place of destruction and a, a, a shameful place, a place that people make fun of. But now Jerusalem will be spoken of by all the nations of the earth as with the highest and most respectful tones of voice, because this is where God has revealed his goodness, his mercy and salvation. Uh, mm -hmm. Now. It's uh, easy for us, I think, to fall into this sort of dispensational trap. I was, yeah, telling you before we started the show that I picked up my one commentary and I was a little bit ashamed because it turns out it was by a millennialist. <laughs> <laughs> and so for him, this is huge. He's like, look, Jerusalem, the, the city has to be rebuilt and become in a, in a physical and worldly way glorious again. And Jerusalem has to be honored by all the people of the world uh, in, in this uh, very tangible political way. And, and unless that happens, then Jeremiah and the Lord aren't, aren't telling the truth. Uh, instead, I think for you and me, we, whom he, de de uh, uh, he, he derides us as uh, amillennialists, right? Uh, we see the restoration of Jerusalem as being the spiritual Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of faith. And I think that we have good reason for going in that direction, especially because in the preaching of the New Testament, all of the promises of the restoration of Jerusalem and of God's people and the true blessing and riches of God's people are, are ultimately because of they, the fact that they possess the word of the Lord and they believe it, right? So the true children of Abraham are ultimately not the children that come from his body, but or ultimately those who hear the word of the Lord, the same word that Abraham heard and believed it, right? Those are the true descendants that fill up the, uh, the, the, the fill of the earth, just as numerous as the stars of the sky. If we tried to trace out uh, Abraham's lineage historically, sure, he gives birth to a great nation upon the face of the earth, right? But that nation is, is thrown into obscurity and oblivion. Uh, and thanks be to God that Abraham and his descendants are finally lifted up, uh, uh, not so much because we can trace our blood lineage back to one man, but because we have the same words and promises of, from God, the same words and promises that forgive, right? That wash away guilt, uh, that are a praise and a glory before all the nations because the Lord is mighty in delivering us from death, death itself not just from worldly and, and temporal evils, but from the, the eternal evil of suffering for our sins eternally in hell.
right? So to belong to uh, Jerusalem, to be uh, uh, to be prospered in this Jerusalem is ultimately to to belong to God's people and His holy city of hearing the those who hear the word of the Lord and believe it. Hmm. So then the the verses that speak about the the voice of mirth and the hmm. voice of the bridegroom hmm. and, and bride there in Jerusalem isn't talking about weddings happening in a city in Israel, but maybe it's, it's talking more about what John the Baptist talks about when he identifies Jesus as the bridegroom and, and himself as the friend of the, the bridegroom and, and how much joy he has. Yeah, there's this remarkable section in John chapter 3 uh, where uh, John says that I must diminish and, and uh, Christ who has come and been baptized by him and who is preaching, who is teaching, uh, uh, that he must increase. And John the Baptist there in verse 29, refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom, and his joy is full and complete merely to hear the voice of the bridegroom. So it's as if John the Baptist knows the promises of Jerusalem's restoration and its healing and its health. And it comes not because Herod is going to be uh, such a great king for God's people, which we know that he never was. (laughs) Uh, Instead, It's because Jesus, the Son of God, has come in the flesh, right? And the the voice of the bridegroom is ultimately the voice of the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, which has come near, a preaching of God's mercy and forgiveness and grace, which depends not upon the merits of people, but upon the Lord's own mercy and his heart, which is willing to give of his only begotten son, right? To suffer and to die for the sin of the world. Uh, so the voice of mirth is the voice of, of giving thanks to God for receiving the gospel, right? The voice of gladness is being glad and singing hymns of praise to God because Jesus has come. The voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, you should absolutely think of this as being the voice of Jesus and the voice of the church, which receives Jesus with joy, right? Uh, the, the voices of those who sing who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, which is really wonderful. They're not coming to the house of the Lord bearing their propitiatory sacrifices anymore, trying to to buy off God's kindness and favor. No, instead at the restoration of Jerusalem, uh, which depends not upon anything in man, but upon God himself and his mercy, all of the sacrifices, all of the sacrifices are going to be thanksgiving sacrifices. Whereas sometimes you hear your pastors in Bible study call or in your, their sermons, Eucharistic sacrifices, right? And so invoked here, as uh, as you can see in verse, if you're following along at home, I suppose in verse 11, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136 recalls God's saving work for his people. And the people give up the sacrifice as antiphon in response to the Lord's saving work, this, this, uh, these words of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And thanks be to God that because of what Jesus has come and done for us, uh, this is our antiphon. Every time we come to the church, we give thanks to the Lord. We say his love endures forever. I, I'm afraid of this guy uh, who wrote this commentary that I was reading that's millennialistic, that's dispensationalist. And I wonder if he goes to church on Sunday, if he's able to have the same antiphon of praise and thanksgiving 
that we have. <laughs> you know, what else is he waiting for? You know, what else is he looking forward to historically before he's able to offer up that antiphon of Thanksgiving? For us, uh, poor amillennialists, <laughs> uh, right? It, the, the time has already come. We are living in the new Jerusalem, and we give thanks to God for that always. Amen. Thank, thanks be to God for for keeping these promises that He made through His prophet Jeremiah. And there's there's more promises, and we should we should continue on in the text, Pastor Flamey. We're picking up now in verse fourteen of Jeremiah thirty three. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with a Levitical priest may, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priest who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Mm. That's the rest of the text for today through the end of Jeremiah chapter 33. Yeah. So if we had any doubt. Go ahead. Yeah, go Go ahead. Go for it. No, no, you take it away. Yeah. So so if we had any doubt at all at the beginning of chapter 33 as to the nature of the restoration that's about to take place, here Jeremiah sets the center of the bullseye upon Jesus, like Jesus who who is born of the Virgin Mary, right, in the year 4 BC or so. Uh, who was baptized by John the Baptist, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, raised, and is even now at the Father's right hand, ruling over all things and ruling in his great kingdom of grace. Again, this millennialist commentator said, uh, why do these crazy amillennialist Lutherans want to say this is about the church? Well, obviously, it's because it's about David's son. My goodness, it, dro- it drove me a little bit crazy. When you go through like verse uh, uh, 21, and they have the word son there in my English translation, lowercase. <laughs> mm. It should be uppercase. David's son is the Messiah, the son of God, right? You wonder if these uh, English, uh, these translators from the Hebrew into the English are Christians. Of, of course they are. I'm trying to be generous. But, but you want them to see the clear connection. The branch is an important name given to the Messiah that we've already seen in Jeremiah's prophecy, right? And in fact, it's as if Jeremiah is not afraid of preaching the same sermon twice, which is pretty comforting for 
for pastors like you and me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, so he continues to preach the same sermon about the branch. And the image there is of David's great tree, the tree of his house being chopped off. And, and, and being chopped off, you just have a stump. And if you look at David's, uh, the, the great tree of his house, you say, well, it's cut off. It is ended, right? It's just a stump. It's not a flourishing living tree. But the Lord says, even though people in history and in time and in these days are going to look at David's line and say, it is ended, the Lord says, no, I will send my servant the branch and he will be David's son, right? And also, according to Psalm 110, he will be David's Lord. And the branch will rise up and he is the one. The singular branch will execute justice and righteousness in the land. What kind of justice and righteousness? The, the worldly justice and righteousness that our millennialist uh, commentator friend is looking for? No, but the righteousness of faith and the justice of, of uh, sinners between God because of the justification that Jesus is going to work out through his atoning blood, right? And in those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. Judah's salvation is ultimately not a worldly one, but the one that Jesus brings. I mean, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Look at his ministry, his life, his, his preaching and his works, right? Everybody, the, all the Pharisees, all the scribes and, and the Levites are looking at Jesus saying, is he going to restore Jerusalem's kingdom? Is he going to be another Judas Maccabeus for us and a greater one at that? That's the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And Jesus kept on telling them, no, you're wrong. The prophets were saying that I am bringing a kingdom not of this world. Instead, I'm bringing God's kingdom. That's what it means for Judah to be secure and saved. Uh, that's what it means for Jerusalem to be restored. It's for God's word to be preached, for sinners to hear that word of law and gospel, to repent and believe in the Lord's promises for their salvation, the promises of God's own son dead on the cross to atone them and to reconcile them to God, right? That's what it means for Judah to be saved and for Jerusalem to be secured. And and this is the name by which it, that is Jerusalem. You remember before, right? This is the name by which he shall be called. The branch shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness, right? Now it's all of Jerusalem reflecting the divine name. Uh, uh, the Lord is our, uh, our righteousness. Who is the Lord? The Lord is none other. Mysteriously, uh, the branch. Uh, and this is what we have the advantage of, uh, of seeing it being in the New Testament church, right? Uh, looking back through the aid of Jesus and the apostles and the insight of the Holy Spirit to see that David's son, the branch, who is going to restore David's kingdom, is in fact the Lord himself, who is in fact the righteousness of his people because of his own atoning blood right? And through the righteousness that comes not of works or not of the world, but of faith alone. And this is why in verse 17, it says, for thus says the Lord, David shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Yes, for a time. Uh, it looks like nobody's sitting on the throne. Absolutely. That's true. Uh, David's line appears to go in, in, in some ways underground, right? And nobody is sitting on a political throne in Israel after this moment in time, after 586. Uh, however, when Christ is anointed, 
in his baptism, right? And when he reigns upon the throne of his cross, he draws all the nations to himself. And when he ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father, all of these promises about how David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, they come to pass in Christ and in his uh, suffering, his death, and his glorification to sit even at the right hand of God. And this is why David so marveled at the promise of his son, right? Mm. Who would come after him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's because his son would also have divine glory and honor. His son would sit on the throne forever, not because uh, he established a human kingdom of such great power and glory that it exceeds like the United States or Rome, but rather that he would be an eternal king sitting in the high and heavenly places, even as Jesus sits in the high and the heavenly places. And not only uh, will the kingship of Israel be restored in the branch who, uh, who, uh, who brings righteousness, but also we see the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to uh, burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Uh, you, you, what comes to my mind, as I'm sure it comes to your mind, David, is uh, St. John's words, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our great high priest. He is the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood in offering propitiatory sacrifice upon the cross. And he continues to fulfill his priestly service for us as we are on this earth by interceding for us with the Father in heaven. And not only does he, does he intercede for us, uh, he continues to send forth that word from heaven right? Through the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, that we are at peace with God, right? And so the priestly work of Christ continues today. And the Levitical priests, ha, uh, they shall never lack a, a man in the presence to offer burnt offerings. So this also brings to mind that we also now belong to a priestly people who offer up again, as was mentioned before in, in this chapter, the sacrifices of thanksgiving, these Eucharistic sacrifices of having received the Lord's mercy and his goodness. Now we give back to the Lord songs of thanksgiving and praise. So much there, Pastor Flame. I was really enjoying just listening to you. And it's, there's there's so much good news in this in this text. As you you you've taken us now through about verse 18 mm. into verses 19 and following, you get these if statements. And, and we've heard language like this in Jeremiah previously in chapter 31 about the day and the night and the the order of the of the sun and the moon previously, and, and how if you think those things will change, then then that's I mean. The, the idea of the permanence of those things, the Lord says, that's how permanent my promise is. I think the, the idea is, look, just like the day and night keep happening, so this promise of mine will keep happening. Right. But but what's unique, uh, at least, and, and adds to what we heard previously in chapter 31, is how the Lord adds to this, not only the promise to David to the that is fulfilled in Christ, but he talks about in verse 22, the multiplying of the offspring of David and also those Levitical priests, which I think connects very well with what you're saying about us now being a, a priestly people in Christ. Mm, absolutely. So for this to make sense, I have, and so I was trying to look at our millennialist friend and how he's trying to make sense of all of this. And he literally thinks that Jerusalem is politically and in a worldly sense, going to be restored, that the priests who had been cut off are going to be restored and start offering sacrifices in the temple again. God forbid, 
my goodness, has the guy never read the book of Hebrews? Anyways, <laughs> so he thinks all of these things are going to happen in a worldly, temporal, political sense, right? But if we understand the true hermeneutic of the Holy Scriptures, which God himself has given us in law and gospel, we know that there were two distinct covenants in the Old Testament, right? There was the covenant of the law that the people would possess and hold on to the land as long as they were obedient to the commandments, right? Uh, to love God and to love na- their neighbors as themselves. And so you have to understand that that first covenant of the law was broken by man's own disobedience, right? It was contingent upon whether or not man would do what the Lord had given uh, them to do through Moses' instruction. And so you have to understand how this would dismay the people when they hear the Lord promising blessing and uh, restoration, that the temptation from the devil will be to think, well, this also, these promises also depend on my action, my will, my work, my obedience. And then I'm lost in despair saying to myself, well, if I I couldn't be obedient the first time under the covenant of the law and possessing the land, how is it that I'm going to be obedient enough, right, for the restoration to come? And here the Lord gives the real good news that the second covenant, uh, the true uh, uh, covenant that is based upon God's own mercy, not at all on man's man's, uh, obedience, Uh, will be so unshakable, right? No amount of sin that's committed, no amount of unrighteousness will keep it from happening. It would be as if uh, you tried to stop the sun from coming up, right? Or from setting. Now, as much as you and I might try to do that uh, by trying to like, I don't know, fix poles in the earth and and push the earth the opposite way or something like that, it's just never going to work. We don't possess that kind of strength. That strength belongs to the Lord and to, to what he gives it, right? So in the same ways, you and I have no power to make the sun go up or to make the sun go down. So also we have no power over what's happening next. It depends not upon our own worthiness and obedience as in the previous covenant of the law, uh, uh, and, and by which the people possessed the land temporally and politically. This depends upon God's promise, his mercy. And what comfort this must give to God's people uh, now, of course, in, in the churches when we use this to preach the gospel of Jesus, right? But also in that time and looking forward to the Messiah, saying that God will save us. He will restore us. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us of our guilt, not because we are good, but because he has said so right? His word is the most, is the most established and, and the firmest thing that you could find. His word uh, will last forever. His word will endure even after kingdoms rise and fall. And thanks be to God that his word is that, uh, is that his son, right? Uh, David's son and David's Lord will sit on the throne forever and that he will raise up for himself his own people, And they will be priests forever in the Lord's house, offering the sacrifices of thanksgiving because they have been restored by sheer grace to God, right? By sheer grace, the grace that has been purchased and won through the blood of the branch. Pastor Flamey, we have just under two minutes left on the morning. Reflecting on chapter 33 of Jeremiah, give us your final thoughts. Help us to, again, see the the beautiful promise that's ours in Christ Jesus from this text. Yeah, so remember that the Old Testament, as I'm sure that all of your your guests have been making very, very clear, the Old Testament is full of Christ. 
and Christ Jesus who has come to, to suffer, to die, to rise, to give us eternal hope. And in chapter 33, we see how it is ultimately the promise of the coming Christ, the promise of Jesus who is to come, who is now going to be the hope of the people of Israel. Uh, their temptation is to, to throw up barricades between them and worldly enemies and to trust in those barricades. But the Lord says that this is a failing endeavor, right? That these barricades, which were made of their houses, are only going to be filled with uh, death and bodies of this world. Instead, the Lord sets their eyes not on worldly salvation and worldly restoration, but on heavenly truth and heavenly reality, which is made known through the coming of the branch. Uh, so even though David's line is going to be appear to be cut off and destroyed, yet the Lord will raise up from David's line, uh, one who will sit on David's throne forever, such that uh, David will not lack a man to sit on the throne forever. The Lord keeps on preaching the same sermon, the Old Testament, again and again and again. And just as he preached it at first to David in talking about his son, who would also be his Lord, so also he's bringing that same promise to bear uh, for his people in their moment of, of extreme distress and saying, trust not in resisting Nebuchadnezzar and prevailing against him. It's not going to happen right? Instead, trust in Christ, and there you will find forgiveness, peace, and a heavenly kingdom that cannot be destroyed by human hands. Pastor Brian Flammy is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 1 to 26. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on this series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app and the open mic feature there to send a message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>